Hey, the kids are dismissed for kids' praise. And if you have your Bibles, you can open to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. And we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. Last week, how we were led in worship by our kids, and it was amazing. Uh, We watched it from home, Lynn and I and my, my daughter, as... We were fighting illness last week, but it was amazing uh, to behold. Uh, Beginning in 27, chapter 1, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, as I read this, I thought, man, this sounds like works righteousness. Like we need to have the right conduct to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And uh, I thought, what's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about grace or is he talking about conduct and doing the right thing? And, and I got thinking, God's word never talks about works righteousness. In fact, afterwards in chapter 2, verse 12, he writes, work out your salvation. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. Philippians 2, 5, as an example, he said, let the mind of Christ be in you, which is also in Christ. You might be thinking, all right, I need the mind of Christ. I need to think like Jesus. I need to do the right things and think the right thoughts. And in and, and part, that's true, but that sounds like works righteousness until you realize in Corinthians, Paul says, we already have the mind of Christ in us. If we have the spirit of God indwelled within us, we already have the mind of Christ. And so what we have to do is work out our salvation, that which is already within us. Another example, Matthew 5.13 in the Sermon on the Mount. We, you are the salt of the earth, he's, Jesus says. Not try to be the salt. You already are the salt. Therefore, uh, be salty. Which means we need to get out of the salt containers, no matter how ornate they are like this. We need to get out of the salt shakers and into the world where we can be preservatives, where we could be healing and cleansing and flavoring. Then the very next verse in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Therefore, let your light shine. You are, that's who you are. You don't have to try to let your light shine in a sense. You already are, but we need to get out of Menards in the light aisle and go to the dark places if we're to be all that God's calling us to be, if we're to shine. This sermon series is called Shine from the book of Philippians. Paul was concerned that the church in Philippi would shine. So how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we shine in the darkness? Well, we will conduct ourselves in a manner worthy when we work work out the gospel together in unity, make the gospel our priority and live out the gospel with humility. Unity, priority, humility. So that's our outline this morning. We need to work out the gospel together in unity. 27b, chapter 1. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Together in oneness. 
When Epaphroditus delivered uh, the gift, the financial gift to the Apostle Paul when he was under house arrest in Rome, he traveled hundreds of miles from Philippi to Rome to be with Paul. And Paul was deeply encouraged that he was remembered by the church in Philippi that he founded 10 years earlier. But also with this financial gift, it was reported that there was strife in the Philippian church, namely because of two prominent women leaders who were in the church, and people were choosing sides as to which leader they wanted to follow. And Paul says, you believers need to be reminded that you need unity if you're to, um, if you're to be effective with the gospel of Christ. Unity is vital as you strive together as one body. 27, Paul uses athletic language, striving together. The word in Greek is sunathleo, and there's a prefix, soon means together, and um, athleo means strive. In fact, 16 different times Paul uses the prefix soon together throughout the book of Philippians. You connected to different verbs like work together, serve together, love together. Um, but here it's strive together and it's athletic terminology. Um, the church is one team as we strive together. A victory demands teamwork. Last night I watched the Buffalo Bills play uh, New England Patriots and they worked together. The offensive line had to work really hard to protect the quarterback, et cetera, et cetera. And today we'll cheer on the, the Chiefs for the same reason. But in back, basketball terminology, one who doesn't work together would be a glory hound. You know, they'd, they'd take the rock and they would shoot it up every time. And they don't know the definition of a pass. Have you ever played basketball with someone like that? It's frustrating. And if you have a team player like that, then chances are, although they might be a star, you will lose as a team. Um, James and John, the two disciples, sons of thunder, they made a request of Jesus that they might sit on the right hand and left hand side of Jesus. They were glory hounds. They wanted the recognition. Um, and then also in the book of Third John 9, Diatrophes, he loved the preeminence. He loved first place. They were glory hounds. Well, we need a great, we will be greater um, in our effectiveness if we work together. As a youth pastor in Salina many years ago in the 80s, I was fresh out of college and um, a ministry team, singing group, and I was like, oh man, I got this. This We're going to rock this youth ministry here. Well, I was the professional. I was the one who's trained, and so I did everything. You know, I got adult volunteers, leaders to come in. I just said, you do whatever, but I'm going to be in charge of everything. I led music. I gave the messages. I, uh, I got the snacks, and, and I made sure I set out the snacks. I cleaned up afterwards. Um, I did everything, you know. Um, there, were, there weren't small groups because I wanted to be in charge. And as a result, the youth ministry was okay, but it didn't thrive. Well, a few years later, when I became a youth pastor again in Indiana, I had learned a couple of things, and I began to delegate uh, to other adult leaders and student leaders who were college students and high school students. And I, I said, no, I'm not going to do the openings and the icebreakers. I'm not going to be in charge of the games or the welcoming or the cleanup. I'm not going to be in charge of getting the food. In fact, you are. And so I, I just delegated to people who are passionate about these different areas. In fact, there are many weeks I didn't even speak. 
because we had great high school teachers who were great teachers. And so as a result, our youth ministry exploded because there was so much more ownership and it wasn't done by the paid professional. And I realized something there that we need to work as a team in the body of Christ if we're to be effective. No one is a pew potato, like a couch potato. All, all, minister, all people are ministers of the gospel. A couple pastors, but many ministers. And that's why our church thrives here, because we have an effective prayer ministry team, and a mission team, and a teaching team, and a leadership team, and a deacon team, and a properties team, and a worship teams. We have connection teams. We have our children and youth leaders and nursery workers. We have um, our life group leaders, and we work as a team to care for one another, and on and on. Bible studies, Christian formation classes as teams. And that's why we need to be a part of a team if we're to thrive and be effective. And we have greater hope when we're working together as well. (coughs) When Epaphrodite delivered the financial gift to Paul, Paul was very encouraged because it communicated that they hadn't forgotten Paul 10 years later. And they still remembered him and prayed for him. He wasn't suffering in isolation as he was awaiting trial under Caesar's court. In verse 28, striving together as one without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. For it has granted, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We're in this together. As we are together, we don't have to be frightened, Paul says. The word for frightened here is referring to a horse that is isolated from the pack or the whatever you call pack of horses, you know? A band of horses, I guess. Um, It was separated and so it shied away in battle as opposed to a horse with all the other horses charging in battle with confidence and boldness and strength. This one horse was frightened because it was in isolation. Since Thanksgiving, I've been struggling with illnesses. First, I had sinusitis that's going around, and, and uh, it was really, hit me really hard, and, and uh, major cough and congestion and tiredness. And, and once I got medication and care for that, uh, it led to sleepless nights because it led to this acid reflux that I'd never, ever experienced before. And it just got into my throat and gagged me every night, and I couldn't sleep. And, and so I had to get that taken care of. And just when I was getting that under control, about 10 days ago, I got slammed with COVID, and I lovingly passed it on to my wife and daughter. So we've been home quarantining until a couple of days ago under COVID. And I got to tell you, having COVID, as if you've had it before, um, it's nerve-wracking, isn't it? Because I developed a cough again, and it went into my lungs, and it became a dry cough, and it's like, oh no, is this going to regress, and is is it going to get worse and worse as the days progress and it was just nerve-wracking and worrisome. Surely not you, pastor. You might be thinking you preach against worry and fear. Fear is the number one command, fear not, in the Bible. And so how can you have worry and fear? Well, i got to tell you, um, in order to apply God's word to one's life, one has to be very intentional about pressing into the truth. Otherwise, our natural tendency is to go the way of fear and worry. And so it was a roller coaster. 
I did depend on the Lord, but I did worry and fear, and I had to confess that and repent. But what helped more than anything was to know that I wasn't alone in this. I had great hope because there was a prayer ministry team behind me. And there were many others who reached out and, and text, uh, saying, we're praying for you, John, and, uh, and for your family as well. Here's the deal. We're never meant to go through difficult seasons alone with this attitude. I'll survive. Me and God, we got it. You know, me, I just trust in me and God. No, we're a body of Christ, and we're to be together as one. And when we're isolated from the body, then we're like a log that's thrown off the fire, and it will begin to smolder on its own. Paul knew that he needed his friends and encouragement. Even Jesus needed his disciples when he was at the darkest time in his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying and sweating drops of blood because he was on the precipice of being crucified. He called out his disciples, would you stay awake and pray? He even needed his disciples. How much more so us? Fortunately, I didn't go through this ordeal alone, as I mentioned. I had the body of Christ surrounding me and my family as well. And then we have a greater witness working together. Again in verse 28. No need to be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, to the opposition, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. This will be a sign or a witness. Um, In other words, they will know that we are Christians by our what? By our bumper stickers, that's right. And by our Christian t-shirts and by our iPod lists, and by our... No, they'll know we are Christians by the way we love one another, by the, way, by the way we're together with each other. And they'll look on and wonder, what do they have that I need? Because they love each other. And that's why Christianity spread, and always spreads, because those who are persecuting, they look on on the believers, and they, they see them banding together as one with this great hope, And they say, man, what do they have? It's unearthly. It's otherworldly. It's what I need. They have a confidence. They're not fearing death as they're together. It's a powerful testimony. As these five men from Wheaton College, (coughs) they banded together in 1956, my alma mater. Many of the dorms are named after Jim Elliott, husband of, of Elizabeth Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Roger Yoderian. And they were reaching out to the Auka savage uh, tribe, unreached people, Auka meaning savage, um, in Ecuador. And so for five months after graduation, they flew over the Auka tribe uh, territory, and they would drop a bucket with, with, you know, things to care for them, you know, little gifts and whatnot. And in return, they would put gifts in the bucket, and they would uh, trade, if you will, not trade, but they would respond likewise. And it was amazing. You know, for five months they did this, and then finally they discerned that God wanted them to land and uh, be face-to-face with these tribal people. And when they did that, I don't know how many days afterwards, all five of them got speared to death by a river, and they were all martyred for Christ. But because of their testimony... Um, these the Alka people did not forget them. In fact, two years later, Elizabeth Elliot, along with one of the daughters, Nate Saint's daughter, returned to the Alka tribe, and they cared for them 
And they translated the Bible, the New Testament, in their language. And over time, these same ones who speared their husbands and fathers to death, um, they accepted Christ. And then it began to spread throughout the tribe because they were together. They worked together as a body. And it, and, and it gave great hope to these Alka, unreached Alka people. We need to work out our gospel together in unity. That's the long point. Uh, the next point is make the gospel our priority. Chapter 2. Therefore, if, any, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul is saying, it's like, are rocks hard? Of course, rhetorical. If you have any of these things, of course they did. Then respond in like manner. By being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit, one in mind. Paul's not speaking here of a priority, uh, a theological um, agreement about everything. He's, he's talking about a, a purpose, an agreement and purpose in the gospel message. Live out the gospel in unity. Unity does not mean uniformity. We can have our theological differences so long as it doesn't contradict God's word directly. But there's a lot of theological differences when you go from church to church. For example, the Baptists do not have to worship like the Episcopalians, who do not have to worship like the Assembly of God churches, who do not have to worship like the Covenant church. You know, there are differences in the way we, we seek God and worship him. And God is a God of variety and diversity in that sense. And in fact, Paul the Apostle gives... Theological, he, he allows for theological differences in Romans chapter 14 and Corinthians 2. He says you know, there are some people in the church in Rome who believe that eating meat sacrificed to idols is just wrong. It's sinful. And then there's another group that says, no, I'm free to eat anything I want to. He says, be convinced in your own hearts and follow your own convictions. You have differences whether you should eat meat or not. That's Okay. Just don't cause one another to stumble. And then in, in the same token, there were those who said, this day is sacred to the Lord. Others say, no, there's no sacred days. All days are sacred to the Lord. And there was, again, a discrepancy in the church. And Paul says, don't worry about it. Accept one another's differences, and that's okay. In fact, in Romans 14, he says, each of you should be fully convinced in their own mind. Do not quarrel over disputable matters. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. We're going to have our differences. We've got to get over it. And we need to accept each other with our differences. But we have one shared common purpose, and it's the priority of living out the gospel. We need to have one mind and one vision, one passion, one goal. And that's the good news. For example, if you're stuck on the 20th floor of a burning building, and uh, there were 30 other of your co-workers trapped in the building, and there's no way out. And so the elevators are shut down and stairwells, and then you realize, wait, I, there's this door leading somewhere in, around the corner and back there in that hallway, and I don't know what it's for, but you go, you kick down the door, and you realize it's an old abandoned stairwell, and there's a way of escape. And so what do you do? 
Well, then you run out and you jump for joy because you got out free, right? No, you don't do that. You run back in and you tell the other 30 people, I found a way of escape for our lives. Well, we know the way out of an eternal place of death and the way to eternal life. And yet we tend to get way more excited about buy one, get one free Big Mac Monday than we do about that fact, that we know the way to eternal life. And we withhold the truth because, hey, I made it out alive. I'm going to eternal life. I'm happy. Woohoo! look at me. We got to be concerned about those who are still trapped in the lie, in darkness. Second Corinthians says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. That's how God does it through us, through our actions and through our words. And so Paul says, I implore you on behalf of Christ, tell people how to be reconciled with God. So what are our priorities? Are they the gospel? Or if you consult your calendar and if you consult your checkbook, would you discover other priorities other than the gospel of Christ? And I got to confess that there are many times when my priority is not the gospel. But Paul says we need to be together in that we live out this priority. If we're to be um, walk in a manner worthy of the conduct of Christ. Finally, and this is the last point, we need to live out the gospel in humility. In humility or with humility. If you've experienced, Paul says, if you've experienced any of these things, any of these things like the blessings from God, the grace of God, the encouragement from being united with Christ, then please make my joy complete and extend the same grace to other people. Philippians says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What, do they, what does that mean? Selfish ambition is a personal advancement of self-promotion. However I can promote myself, that's the way of the world. He says, do nothing out of self-promotion. What is vain conceit? It's thinking highly of yourself. Your self-preoccupation with your one's own ability, one's own knowledge of the truth, one's own talents and importance. And then we look down on other people. And that's vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In humility. Humility is the, it means the lowliest of, to, uh, of mind. The lowliness of mind. To the Greeks, humility would have been offensive. It would have been disgraceful. It would be abject groveling to these Gentile Greeks in Europe and to these Philippian people. But Paul says, no, this is the way of Christ. It is so unlike the way of the world, this humility. Here's the deal. If we say we love God, but we don't show love for one another, then we don't really love God, John says. First John, whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen God. If we're at odds with someone in your, our life, as you're sitting there, I want you to think, are you at odds with someone in this world, even with an enemy? Then you can't love God if you're, not, if you're withholding love from them. It's as clear as day throughout Scripture. 
If you say you love God but don't love others, then you're living a lie. Um, We don't have the option to devalue others, to hate others, to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness and unkindness. We do not have the option to seek retaliation. It is not allowed as believers in Christ, biblically. Not allowed. And yet we see it all the time. We see it especially on Facebook, don't we? But we see it and hear it all the time. Instead, Jesus said we must value others above ourselves. Yeah, but what if others are just dead wrong? What if they're plain wrong? Then value them anyway. Serve them anyway. But what if others are trying to cause me harm? Then Jesus said, well, then love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't retaliate. Love them. But that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But it's the Christ-like trait. Uh, They will know that you are my disciples by the way you love others. And that's the way Christ loved us and continues to love us. When we act as his enemies, he continues to love us unconditionally. He said, do you want to look like Jesus? Do the same. Do you remember how Jesus treated Judas on the night of the Last Supper? who he knew was right about to betray him. He got down on his hands and knees and he washed Judas' feet. He said, and likewise, this is how you are to treat one another, even your enemies. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, let the mind of Christ dwell on you. Again, we already have the mind of Christ. We have to work out that which is already within us by way of application, as Jesus did. And Jesus did this. In verse 6, describing Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. When When people look at us, do they see us as servants? Do, do they see us and hear us valuing others above ourselves? Or do, do they hear us devaluing people? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus went, he even died for his enemies. Now would you uh, ever think about giving up your life or trading places with a son or a grandson or granddaughter who is sick? and terminally sick, and she's not given long to live, or he, would you as a grandparent say, I'm willing to die for my grandchild? And you'd think, it'd be hard, but because I love them so deeply, I would do that. Well, Jesus said, that's good. That's really good that you do that, and we would do that, but I tell you, love your enemies in the same way. Um, The guy who's constantly opposing you Because that's how Jesus loves us when we oppose him and disobey him. When we seek retaliation toward those who have wronged us, it already proves that we are wrong, that we're losing, that we have lost. Even if we can justify our thoughts and our feelings and our our convictions, even when we do that, we've already proven that we're fighting the losing battle. And it becomes clear to everyone else except for maybe us 
because we're too busy justifying our own thoughts and feelings. We're playing on the side of Satan, sin, and the world. We need to stop accusing other people and give other people the benefit of the doubt. We have to be the most gracious people on the face of the earth if we're to be Christ-like. I recently saw a list of 100 people (coughs) who were accused of by a prominent Christian leader and pastor in ministry of being false teachers. They were listed right there on the church website. Here are 100 false teachers. And that picture is connected to it right there. And I'm going to withhold the name of this pastor who I respect, actually, whose commentaries I use sometimes. But the majority of those who are listed on the list were Christian leaders today who are making a great difference, even though they disagree with this particular pastor. He names them as false teachers because of a disagreement on certain things. For example, on the list are included, have you heard of Charles Finney? How about Beth Moore or T.D. Jakes or Rick Warren or Billy Graham's daughter, Tolian Chavidian? Have you heard of Oral Roberts before? He's a false teacher. And N.T. Wright and Neil Anderson, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Dallas Willard, C. Peter Wagner, who's a Fuller Bible teacher, Fuller Bible Institute, Greg Boyd, Neil Anderson, Richard Foster, all the leaders at International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Sarah Young, whose devotional is very popular. All of these are listed as false teachers. And the list goes on and on. You know, I even heard this preacher speak out on his website against Billy Graham. For, uh, Billy Graham was saying something that he disagreed with and he called him out publicly like that. Now you might, not, you might not prefer all of these teachers that are listed and some of them are no doubt cult leaders. I didn't name some of them. And they're cult leaders because they teach something different about Jesus and about the gospel. But to my knowledge, all these people seek to serve Jesus, love him, and and glorify his name in their ministries, the ones that I named. Um, And it's very disturbing to me that they would be called out publicly like this in a prominent ministry. This seems to be the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about when it comes to humility. Seems to be very arrogant and vain conceit in my book. What did Jesus do when he was accused by Pontius Pilate and Herod and, and all those upon the, the, the weekend when he's crucified, it said, he opened, Jesus spoke not a word against his accusers. One who was accused, and actually two books were written against him uh, by way of indictment, is Rick Warren, who's the founder of Saddleback Church. And his, and his church was founded Celebrate Recovery. Um, we've used the Purpose Driven Life book. And so Rick Warren was asked in an interview that I was listening to, what do you do with these people who are accusing you as being a false teacher? And his response is, what they think of me in no way affects what I think of them. That's a standard response. And never once, he said, have I ever gone online and said anything derogatory or negative against any one of my accusers. And he said, every time I withhold that, I feel the Lord's favor upon me and his anointing on me and, and the ministry here at Saddleback. And so I'm not, that's not my concern. And that strikes me as one who is humble, very Christ-like. 
Jesus came to bless others, and he took on the role of a humble servant when he did so. We must likewise do so if we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that we shine in a dark world. How do we do that? Just by way of last slide review, we need to work out the gospel together. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need to make the gospel our priority, and then we need to live out this gospel with humility. May we do so. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, I thank you that uh, for the word that's living and active and convicting, Lord. Oh, my. I had to do some serious repenting this past week as I was studying this myself. I needed to get right with you and ask for forgiveness in so many areas. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray, Lord, that we take your word seriously and that we don't sit in our seats and justify our thoughts and actions, but we come clean with you this morning, Lord, and we, uh, and we allow you to soften our hearts and make us more like Jesus. Oh, Lord, we need you desperately so that we can shine in this crooked and depraved generation, Lord, as your humble, grace-filled Christians, followers, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.